0: Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening, bed crimers. As always, I wish you the best to anyone new here. A warm welcome. Thank you for checking out my channel. Let me just ask that after listening to or watching this video, if you learned something or enjoyed it, please do me a favor and smash that like button. Now let's dig in. Many people are wondering if defendant Brian Koberger, who is accused of harming four University of Idaho students, will be offered a plea deal. Some people on Reddit are saying that they are pretty sure he will get a plea deal and that he will likely take it because if found guilty, he could be sentenced to death. In my opinion, I do not believe that Koberger would take a plea deal even if offered one. He's the type who's never going to admit what he allegedly did. However, I also don't believe he will be given a plea deal. I say this because I've heard many experts, including former federal prosecutor Naima Ramani, say that the state won't offer Koberger a plea deal. First, they have nothing to give him. Ramani said the case is going to trial in all likelihood and that there is more than enough evidence to Convict the defendant. Romani also mentioned the Lori Vallow Daybell case and said that Idaho botched that one because Vallow should have been facing the death penalty. After all, she did in her two children and doesn't seem to show any remorse for it. Romani called Vallow a complete sociopath. Although Romani is confident the state has enough evidence to convict Brian Koberger, he did say they will have to find a way to explain the lack of blood evidence in his car and apartment. Apparently, there are other cases where, despite a gruesome crime in which you'd expect to see a lot of blood, there wasn't a lot, and the prosecution was able to successfully explain why not. Case in point, the Phil Spector trial. Prosecutors accused the famous music producer, Phil Spector, he's the guy who had the crazy hairdo, very Hollywood, of doing in a VIP hostess from the House of Blues, Lana Clarkson. Clarkson, a beautiful blonde actress, was found dead at Specter's Alhambra mansion on February 3rd of 2003, slumped in a chair with her legs outstretched in front of her. Clarkson had been shot in the mouth. Specter claimed she did this to herself because she was despondent about her fading hopes of becoming a Hollywood star. The prosecution said, Specter was drunk and became angry when Clarkson refused his advances. Apparently Specter was wearing a white woman's jacket, mm-hmm, very Hollywood, but it only had about 18 tiny drops of Clarkson's blood on it. The defense argued the jacket would have been covered in the red stuff if Specter had been close enough to put the barrel in her mouth. Specter's attorneys argued that the absence of blood on the jacket cuffs in particular, was evidence that Spectre was not the shooter. It became a battle between the state's experts versus the defenses. Spectre actually had two trials. The first ended in a hung jury. His subsequent retrial, when he was convicted of the crime, led to Spectre spending his final years in prison and ultimately dying at the age of 81 of COVID 19. It will be fascinating to find out how the prosecutors will tackle the reported lack of blood evidence in Koberger's car and apartment, if that's true. We know he meticulously cleaned his white Hyundai Elantra while in Pennsylvania because law enforcement officials watched him do it. Will that be the prosecution's only theory as to why there wasn't a treasure trove of DNA evidence in the car? Will they say Koberger did the same thing at his apartment after the crime? That he cleaned it meticulously? Will they posit that he somehow had his car seat covered with something that protected it from blood? Will they say he quickly stripped off the black clothing he allegedly was wearing during the commission of the crime before he got into the Elantra, put the clothing in multiple plastic trash bags, and then dumped those bags somewhere? over those remote country roads. Once again, I can't wait for this trial to hear how all of this is going to be presented. From what some YouTube experts, as well as people who know Brian Koberger say, I believe there's a strong possibility he's a narcissist, or at the very least has narcissistic personality traits. Some experts believe that Koberger is likely enjoying all this attention, that he is getting a kick out of hearing people talk about the crime and about him. He may want to go to trial because that would be another opportunity to have his alleged crime discussed, and it may be that he's not terribly worried about facing the death penalty anytime soon. Koberger has studied criminology and the criminal justice system. He is very well aware that many inmates on death row never have to face the death chamber, that through the appeals process, those on death row can stave off that ultimate punishment for decades. Don't forget about Idaho death row inmate Gerald Pizzuto Jr. He's gotten out of his execution for 37 years thus far. I listened to a recent show on Hidden True Crime where Dr. John Matthias and his wife Lauren discussed a theory they've come up with, with a possible motive for the crime that occurred at 1122 King Road and that took the lives of Kaylee Gonzalez, Ethan Chapin, Maddie Mogan, and Zanna Kernodal. I like to say the students' names because they're the ones we need to remember. Let's not let them get lost in all these discussions. In leading up to their new idea for a motive, Dr. John and Lauren talked about the psychology that may have fueled the crime. But before I dive into it, let me just say that Brian Koberger has yet to be convicted, so he is presumed innocent. However, he has been charged by the Moscow police, and he is their one and only suspect. So for the sake of this discussion, I'm going to speculate that he is the perpetrator. This is just for discussion's sake. As part of their explanation for this new motive, Dr. John and Lauren went over a timeline of events in Koberger's life that they feel may have led up to the explosion of rage on November 13, 2022. They circled back to his formative years and that series of posts made in 2011 on a forum called Tappa Talk by a user many believe to have been Brian Koberger. Dr. John pointed out that in these posts, Koberger spoke about his emotional and mental struggles. It would appear that he was suffering from depression and anxiety from an early age. Later, after being bullied and rejected, primarily by female classmates, the overweight Koberger went on a diet and took up kickboxing. In the process, he managed to shed 130 pounds. All of this led to what appears to be some obsessive compulsive behaviors. We know Koberger is very strict with his vegan diet and that he maintained his slim physique through running. Dr. John brought up Koberger's high school era addiction to the big H and posited that perhaps Koberger tried this drug to self-medicate away his depression and anxiety. Per Dr. John, this drug can lessen anxious thoughts. Dr. John then described Koberger's as being extremely sensitive, introverted, prone to depression and anxiety and suffering from social awkwardness. That social awkwardness seems to have followed him throughout his life like an unwanted shadow. Trying as he might, Koberger didn't seem to be able to change that one thing about himself. Through it all, whether zoftic or rail-thin, Brian seems to have remained a pariah when it comes to attracting the attention of pretty females that he seems to have felt entitled to hanging out with with. There are stories of him going up to females and boldly saying, let's hang out. That's a pretty bold move. It would indicate that Koberger presumed these pretty females should and would like him and want to spend time with him. One woman from his college years described that uncomfortable Tinder date with him. She said that after the date, Koberger insisted on walking her to her dorm room where he proceeded to tickle her, a move the female found weird and rather juvenile. It was as if this young man was a little kid and had no clue how to behave on a first date. After Koberger finally left, he sent his date a text in which he told her that she had really good birthing hips. I think we can all agree that isn't going to win a guy a second date. Dr. John said he can't say for sure if Koberger is on the autism spectrum and if so, if that could explain some of his social awkwardness awkwardness. Not that everyone who's on the autism spectrum is socially awkward. That's why they call it a spectrum. Once over the addiction and graduated from high school, Koberger pursued higher education and he became a really good student. At DeSales, associate professor Michelle Bolger, who taught him, described Koberger as a quote, great writer and said he was quote, a brilliant student. She also stated that in her 10 years of teaching, she'd only recommended two students to a PhD program and Koberger was one of them. For Brian, This success in academia must have made him feel so happy and as if he'd found a place where he finally fit in. So his education and success at school must have become huge parts of his identity. And the PhD program that he was accepted into at Washington State University must have felt like another sign that this is where he belonged. His timeline at WSU becomes incredibly important. I say this because the succession of events that occurred there may just explain why he allegedly exploded in rage on November 13th. He moved to Pullman, Washington to begin his PhD program in criminology on June 25th of 2022. On this same day, his mother Marianne allegedly posted some comments under the name Downton Love on Reddit, as part of a group she played a design game with. If these posts were in fact made by Mrs. Koberger, they reveal a woman who loves her son, still worries about him, even though he's a young man at that point, and who may have babied him well into young adulthood. When Marianne made that post, Brian was actually 27 years old, an age when many young people were already out of the nest. Some married with children, some in the military and posted in faraway places places, Marianne comes across as being very protective of Brian, and she expresses concern for her son as he makes a cross-country move from Pennsylvania to Washington State. Downton Love, aka Marianne Koberger, wrote, Hello, friends. Today, my 26-year-old son left for Washington State to begin his doctorate in criminology. We live in Pennsylvania. I probably won't be submitting many designs in the next few days because I will be too busy crying. I will see you all soon. Then, after someone replies to her, Marianne responds with, Thank you so much for saying that to me. My son will be in Pullman, in the eastern part of the state, quite close to the Idaho border. He knows absolutely no one, and we have no family there. I worry about him being lonely. So your message made me feel better." Note that Marianne actually misstated Brian's age. He was 27, not 26, when he moved to Pullman. Dr. John suggested that maybe Marianne deliberately wrote that younger aide because she was embarrassed that her 27-year-old son was only just then leaving the family home, and this was the first time Brian would have been living outside that home. When he attended to sales, he lived at home. Dr. John also speculated that perhaps Marianne wanted to view Brian as younger than he was, that Perhaps she was in denial about his actual age. I find it odd that a mother would forget her child's age because if anyone's going to remember your age and birthday, it's typically your mom. But then again, it's possible this is no big deal and it's just one of those moments where a harried parent makes a simple mistake. Marianne has two daughters as well, so she has to keep three birthdays straight and three ages straight. At a certain age, many people have trouble remembering their own ages and may get it wrong by a year. It happens. In any event, Marianne is clearly expressing her sadness and her fears for her son leaving home and traveling to a place so far away where he doesn't know anyone. She may also fear that Brian will have trouble making friends as he had throughout middle and high school. With him so far from home, she can no longer be his daily buffer against bullies, rejection, or thoughts of unworthiness. Dr. John felt that perhaps Marianne had been both super supportive to Brian, but also maybe overly protective of him. And it's also possible that she helped cultivate a superiority complex in her son, making him believe that because she loved and adored him, that all females would do the same. So Brian moves, and his semester at Washington State University, where he's also garnered a prestigious teaching assistant position, or TA position as they say, begins in August. He finds himself a TA for three undergraduate criminal justice classes, all three under the supervision of of Professor John Schneider. And by the way, for a PhD seeker to teach three classes along with completing his own schoolwork, well, that's not easy. It's a lot of work if you want to do it all well. So there has to be some stress involved in all of this. I was a TA and I taught two classes a day and I was so stressed out my first semester that I would go home and cry into my pillow. I wanted to get out of that TA position so badly but I felt I couldn't because the faculty would see me as a failure, so I persevered. But it was hell at times. That's August. Koberger is just starting out on his Ph.D. journey. This should be his milieu. He's done well before at a university. Why should this be any different? Come September, Brian applies for an internship with the Pullman Police Department. He writes an essay expressing his interest in helping rural cops better collect and analyze technological data in public safety operations. But despite being one of the finalists, Brian doesn't get the internship. That had to have been a wound to his ego. Then on September 23rd, just a month into his PhD program, something really bad happens. He gets into a verbal altercation with his supervisor, Professor John Schneider. This is not good. At this point, Koberger should be on his best behavior with the criminology faculty and doing everything in his power to be both a stellar student and a very professional TA. To get into an ugly verbal altercation with a faculty professor just one month into the semester is an ominous sign. The faculty professors hold the keys to to Koberger's future in the PhD program and ultimately in his career. So already Koberger isn't getting the praise and support that he's used to in academia. He also doesn't have his mother nearby to bolster his confidence and soothe him. On October 3rd, Brian has to meet with higher-ups in the criminology department because of that verbal altercation. So now the whole faculty is aware of the incident. Koberger is also receiving complaints from female students about his behavior in the classroom and on campus. One female student tells the faculty that Brian followed her to her car one day, which apparently made her very uncomfortable and creeped her out. Then on October 21st, Koberger receives an email from the faculty, and in it, it explains the ways in which he's failing to meet their expectations for him as a TA. More negative feedback. Things are spiraling now into a disaster. Next, on November 2nd, the graduate director of the criminology department, Dale Willits, and another professor meet with Brian to discuss an improvement plan. Koberger agrees to the plan. Now think about this in terms of the timeline. November 2nd is just 11 days before the crime in Moscow, Idaho. At this point, Koberger is confronting nothing but trouble at WSU. His career is imploding. He's getting into to trouble likely because of his personality, his lack of social awareness, and his arrogance. Keep in mind, too, that teaching assistants at WSU receive a stipend each month to pay their rent, and out of state tuition is waived the first year until the TA can establish residency. Kohlberger likely needs that TA position to continue studying at WSU, and it would appear that he plans on completing his PhD there because he's already started the process of establishing residency by getting a Washington driver's license and by registering his car and by registering himself to vote in the state. Out of state, PhD students at WSU are expected to establish residency. If Koberger blows the TA job then he can probably kiss his career at WSU goodbye. And I doubt he shared any of these problems with his parents. Say this because when he and his dad are pulled over for those two traffic stops on the drive home to Pennsylvania for the holidays, Michael Koberger is clearly beaming with pride as he tells the officer that his son is in the PhD program. I doubt Mr. Koberger would have been so genuinely proud of his son if he knew about all the troubles Brian was having with the faculty, with his students, with his classmates. So the ultra-sensitive Brian Koberger is being criticized by Professor Snyder and the other professors in the department. Maybe it feels to Brian as if he's being bullied by them and like they're all ganging up on him unfairly. According to an article I read on the website for aspirecounseling.com, people suffering from narcissism and those who are sociopaths often show patterns of being vengeful controlling, obsessive, and intimidating. The website says, quote, when a narcissist is violated to the core, the narcissist may act out with rage. This rage is often identified to be a response to what is known as narcissistic injury. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders describes narcissistic injury to be, quote, vulnerability in self-esteem, which makes narcissistic people very sensitive to injury from criticism or defeat. Although they may not show it outwardly, criticism may haunt these individuals and may leave them feeling humiliated, degraded, hollow, and empty. They react with disdain, rage, or a defiant counterattack, End quote. And along with the nonstop criticism Koberger is receiving at the university, he may also have been feeling rejected from pretty females in the area. We heard Brian reportedly slid into the direct messages of one of the four victims. A source told People Magazine that Koberger messaged a victim on Instagram in the weeks before the crime, but the victim never replied. Although the victim may never have seen Koberger's DMs, he likely perceived her non-response as a rejection. Dr. John feels that it's possible that the motive for the crime may have been to even the score, not just with a pretty female who rejected him, but also with Washington State University and Professor Snyder. In this motive, Koberger may have wanted to commit the perfect crime as a way to secretly stick it to the criminal faculty. As in, I'm so much smarter than all of you that I pulled off a quadruple homicide and the cops have no clue who did it. You all think you're so smart, but now you're all talking about a crime that I pulled off and that you'll probably be analyzing in your classes in the future. <laughs> maybe in the beginning, this crime planning stuff, the 11 late night trips to the King Road neighborhood, maybe all of that was just for fun. A way to live out the behavior that Koberger learned about from his textbooks and a way to spend the lonely weekends. Maybe Koberger was emulating famous serialists like Dennis Rader and Ted Bundy, whom he'd studied, he knew that they stalked their victim. Maybe this was Koberger's own internship, a way to live out the fantasy of exacting revenge on the faculty at WSU and on every pretty girl who'd ever ignored him, bullied him, not gone on a date with him. But maybe his own internship picked up speed as time went by and the criticism mounted and the desire for revenge grew. Post the crime, Koberger met with the faculty faculty, including with Professor Snyder on December 7th, to discuss his progress in terms of the improvement plan. At that point, the faculty was saying that while he'd not yet perfectly met their expectations, he had made some progress. So that was positive. Remember, Koberger had seemed more friendly post the crime and had started giving all his students, males and females alike, good grades. He appeared to be happier, bubblier. But then on December 9th, Koberger had a second verbal altercation with Professor Snyder. In Koberger's termination letter, it says that the latest altercation had made it clear that he had not made any progress regarding professionalism. So Koberger really hadn't changed his stripes. He merely suppressed them for a while. His inability to play nice with Professor Snyder was still there. And on December 19th, Koberger was informed that he'd been terminated as a TA for the spring semester. The termination letter came after he arrived in Pennsylvania. And if he hadn't yet told his parents of the firing, they would soon learn that he was in deeper trouble than that when their front door was smashed down by FBI agents to arrest their son in the early morning hours of December 30th. What do you guys think? Is it possible that the motive was to stick it to and exact revenge on not just every female who rejected him, but also to the faculty of the criminology department at WSU, who began criticizing him as early as one month into his PhD program. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories. Hey, if you enjoyed this video, please smash the like button. Consider supporting my channel through a Patreon subscription. Definitely subscribe and hit that notification bell. See you next time.